0: value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henninger and I'm your host. In today's episode, I want to discuss a concept called Always Ask Why. This is going to be slightly more philosophical in scope, but I think it's going to reach to the heart of an issue that I think most investors could improve on. When I read popular theory, when I read comments on Twitter, when I read thoughts from other investors, I'm always curious, or I'm often curious, whether they have really thought through their position whether they're constantly asking why something is instead of just taking um, standard practice as right or correct. And I think this really comes down to the idea of sometimes people overestimating their circle of competence. Certainly I have as well. And so I want to dive into that today. We'll be discussing circle of competence, we'll be discussing bond returns, greater fool theory, and what I'm calling the 5-Y framework. Before we get started, I want to make a short request. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast, however you may be listening to this podcast. If you're listening to it on your phone or your computer or your podcast player, just hit the subscribe button so that you can follow along and get all future episodes. The more subscribers I have, the easier it is for people to find my show. If you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to also like the podcast because your likes help to grow the audience as well. So let's dive on in. So the impetus for this show really began as I was thinking about bond returns. I've read a lot of thoughts on the returns of US Treasuries, the returns of bonds in the bond market recently, and it had me thinking that perhaps there's a dichotomy um, in how people are thinking about bonds and how I think they should be thinking about bonds. Now certainly I might not be correct, um, and I'll let you judge for yourself whether my way of thinking about bonds is correct. But I think that there is a gap between many people um, in why they're using bonds in their portfolio. The standard reason um, that bonds are used in their portfolio, as far as my understanding goes, um, I'll start with that to so that you can see where I might have a shortfall here, is that bonds generally used to smooth out volatility in a portfolio a lot of times people talk about bonds are less risky i've certainly refuted that in the past um it's a lot of the because that's based upon the idea that bonds or that volatility is equal to risk and volatility and risk are quite different they mean different things and i think um while certainly they can correlate um volatility on its own is not risk um it might be one type of risk but it's not the only risk that you need to be aware of So certainly by putting bonds in a portfolio, you don't necessarily make the portfolio less risky. What you do tend to do is make a portfolio less volatile. Now, why is that? And that's generally because bonds are a contract where a lender lends out their money in return for an agreement to be paid a certain coupon payment once a year, twice a year, four times a year. The terms are really irrelevant in terms of frequency. The key point is is that they can expect a certain payment to be made on a regular basis, and then after a certain period of time, they get back the principal of their capital. So there's two key components of this. You're expected to get a specific amount of money, and you can know the specific times when you will receive that money. This is very different than a stock. When a person buys a stock and they have equity in a company, there is no set amount of dividends that that investor would receive by owning stock in the company. There's no way to know in advance the specific times or amounts at which dividends will be received in the future. In addition, there's no set time at which you receive back your principal. Your principal itself is subject to volatility in the market and the whims of the market in providing you um, any return that you might want because there's not a date where the stock expires. So a bond becomes due, You know, let's say it's a 10 year bond, at the end of 10 years you get back your original $1,000 that you used to buy the bond. If you spend the $1,000 purchasing stock in a company's IPO, there's no exit public offering um, unless the stock is sold or something like that, or unless the company sold. There's no exit where the company's like, okay, well, we're coming public. We're only going to be public for 20 years, and at the end of 20 years, we're going to go private again at this certain price. You don't know any of that. Instead, there's an indefinite future where your principal may or may not be safe. So the difference here is is that you're having lower volatility because you have a defined principal and a defined date when you're going to get it back, and you have a defined interest payment that you're going to receive and defined amounts when you're going to get those with bonds. You don't have that with stocks. So what bonds do is they lower that volatility because the amount of prediction necessary to go into purchasing and owning a bond is lower than it is with a stock. So where do I think people are getting confused? Well, when you think about bond returns versus stock returns, it becomes quite interesting. When I look at a bond and I see that the 10-year treasury is yielding 1%, that means if you buy a 10-year treasury today, you're going to get 1% of your money paid back to you in interest every year and at the end of 10 years you get back all the rest of your principal money. That means the return of that bond is no higher than 1%. Now it could be lower but what an interest payment does for a bond is it caps the high end rate of return that someone buying that bond can earn. You cannot earn more than the bond return if you hold that bond to maturity. Now, that if is very important, and I'll come back to it Um, because there's always ifs in some of these statements. But a bond's peak return is maxed out at whatever the interest payment is. So if it's 1%, you cannot earn more than 1%. But you could earn less than 1% if the company or the government defaults on that bond. So 10-year treasuries are generally assumed to not be likely to default at all. They're basically assumed to be riskless. So the assumption is that a 1% treasury bond is going to earn 1% and no lower, but certainly it's not going to earn any higher. Now, I also read recently this idea that, well, bonds can provide higher returns as long as interest rates drop. Well... There's a fallacy here, and the the fallacy here is based upon this greater fool theory. So just as when stocks get bid up to extremely high prices that are not justified by the fundamentals of a business, bonds can have the same thing occur. When interest rates fall, it doesn't change the coupon payments that you're going to receive from the bond that you already own. If you buy a bond yielding 1%, you are locking in your return on that bond to 1% or less no matter what happens with the underlying interest rate as long as you hold that bond. Now again, that qualifier is important, as long as you hold that bond. Before I said if you don't sell that bond to someone else. This is the key point. People are assuming that when interest rates are falling, they're going to be able to sell their bonds to someone else at a higher price. In other words, they're speculating. You see, greater fool theory is the idea that there's always someone out there that's more fool than you. So even if you were to buy something that clearly does not make sense to buy, as long as you expect that there's someone else willing to pay more for it than you, then it can make rational sense for you to purchase it and then turn around trying to sell it to someone else. In that way, you can make a profit because even if something is overvalued, there may always there may always be someone who values it even more than you do the problem is is that theory falls apart at some point there's only so many people in the world and someone has to be stuck with the bad returns well if you buy a stock or if you buy a bond sorry at a 1% expected rate of return that means the max aggregate return for everyone who owns that Bond is 1%. Now, that could mean that some people are going to get a 5% rate of return because they're able to sell it to someone who pays an even higher price. But in exchange, the people that buy that bond are going to get less than a 1% return because it has to average out to 1%. You can't earn more than a bond's coupon payment when you're investing in bonds. This is in the aggregate, which means that the only way that any individual earns more. Is by making sure to always sell out to a greater fool. You see, bonds are a lot more zero sum than stocks when it comes to this manner because their return is set, it's fixed. With a stock, dividend payments are uncertain, but earnings can always surprise. You know, if you buy a stock with a 2% dividend payment, but next year, the company raises the dividend by 10%, that means your dividend is now 2.2% on your cost. Your return's gone up. Now, maybe you were expecting a 10% increase each year, but what about next year they decide to double the dividend? So instead of a 2% dividend, you're at a 4% dividend. That capability of an increasing the coupon payment is not possible with bonds. It doesn't matter what the underlying interest rate does. Bonds have a fixed payment. The only way to get a higher return on bonds is if interest payment rates go up and you buy a different bond. But any purchase of a bond at a low rate of return locks in a low compounding rate for that portion of your money. And this is where we get into a trouble because what happens here is when people are buying bonds, they're trying to do it to smooth out volatility. So that goes on under the underlying assumption that When stock prices fall, people want to be able to sell their bonds in order to buy stocks at a cheaper price, and that implies that the bond prices are either going to do one of three things. They will either not fall in price, they will go up in price, or they will fall in price at a lower rate than stocks. This is the point that I want to really bring in the topic of this podcast, always ask why. Why would a bond do those things? And why would it do one of those things over another? And also, why would the bond not fall further than stocks? You see, it all depends upon what the bond's starting coupon rate is. If your bond starts at a coupon rate of 1%, it doesn't have a lot of distance to fall where it makes absolutely no sense for anyone to own the bond. For instance, if you buy a bond yielding yielding a negative yield, you're guaranteeing yourself a negative rate of return on that bond. This is completely foolish for any individual investor. Now, there might be reasons that banks might do this. Um, There might be regulatory reasons where they're forced to own bonds. They don't have a choice, but you have a choice. If you buy a bond you are locking in a bad price if you buy it at a rate that is lower than your discount rate. I don't care what your portfolio allocation is, if you say, okay, I dedicate 20% of my portfolio to bonds, 80% to stocks, that means on 80% of your portfolio, you're gonna have a good return, and 20% of the portfolio, you're gonna have a bad return. And the chance that it's anything else is purely speculation, because if you're using stuff like back tests, Those back tests have embedded assumptions. You can't simply look and say, okay, well, historically, this has worked out. Okay, it's worked out historically, but why? You're going to hear that a lot in this podcast, but why? Well, I would argue that owning bonds has worked out historically because bonds had higher returns. If you bought a bond that was yielding 12%, it capped your rate of return at 12%. But 12 percent's a perfectly acceptable r- return on your money when interest rates or when inflation's relatively low. Now you might have bought it at 12 percent when inflation was relatively high. Maybe inflation was running 10 percent when you bought your bond at 12 percent. Well then if interest rates drop and inflation drops to six percent a year, but you still have a 12 percent bond return, well that's very attractive. But what happens when you buy a one percent bond return? and inflation runs at 6% a year. Well, now you're losing 5% a year. This doesn't it's this doesn't work on an infinite scope of of reference. You can't just look back at history and say, "Well, these things worked in the past" and take away the context within which they worked. Just I try and do the same thing with stocks. There's a reason stocks have returned about 10% a year over time. A portion of that is dividends. A portion of that is stock repurchases. A portion of that is business growth and earnings. A portion of that is a change in the average P.E. multiple. And you add up all those little pieces of return and you get to about 10%. And a portion of that is inflation. I left that one out. So when you add up all these pieces, you can start to understand how stock returns get. Well, bonds are way simpler. A bond return is your coupon payment period. Or your coupon payment plus whatever speculation premium you can get. But the key point is is you should not fool yourself into thinking that because you're able to earn higher than a 1% rate of return on your bond by selling it to someone else willing to accept a lower rate of return that you're investing. That's not investing because there's no guarantee that in the future people will be as foolish as they are now to accept such low rates of return. And I think it's foolish to buy a bond providing 1% rates of return. When And you lock that rate in for 10 years. That means for 10 years, you're going to have terrible returns. That means if you invest a million dollars, a million dollars, that's a lot of money. A million dollars. At the end of 10 years, you're going to have a million dollars, a million ten thousand dollars. Because... Sorry, math's bad there, but basically in 10 years, you'll have $1.1 million because you're going to earn $10,000 each year, which is 1% of a million. But can you believe that over a 10-year period, you think there's nothing you could do to do better than 10% in total over a 10-year period? That's what it means to buy a 10-year bond today. This is nothing more than a bubble, and in a bubble, people start to come up with ideas that sound good simply by looking at the past without having the context for why they work. Sure, if interest rates fall, it raises the bond price of existing bonds because bonds typically normalize such that they are all priced at the same level between new issues and old issues of the same duration. That's why that works. But it doesn't change the fact that anyone buying the bond today at today's price is locking in a 1% rate of return or less. The or less is always important because there's always a chance of default. I don't care if you're the US government. I don't care if you're the French government, the German government, any government in the world. I don't care if, you're a, if it's backed by gold. There's always a chance for default. So the or less is critical here. Why do I bring this up? It's not about bonds and it's not about Greater fool theory. It's about this idea that you need to always ask why. If you want to be a better investor, you need to understand the why around the ideas and the strategies you are using to evaluate investments. When you make an investment, when you put your money on the line, you need to understand what you're doing. And I think a lot of times people overestimate their circle of competence. I certainly have in the past because your circle of competence is probably smaller than you think. Why are you buying that stock? What are the earnings do you expect them to be five years from now? What percentage of those earnings do you expect to be paid to you in dividends? How does that percentage of dividends... How does that percentage of earnings growth correlate to your expected return on the investment? Are you anticipating any rise in the P.E. multiple in order to achieve your return on investment? Why are you safe from having your money default and not lose your money in some sort of bankruptcy proceeding? Why are you safe from the company not being going down during a recession? What protects you in that investment from competitive forces? Why are you going to earn your investment return? Why do you think you know more about this company than someone else? Why is it that the company is trading at the cheap price, if it's at a cheap price? Or if it's at an expensive price, how are you sure that the company is going to grow as fast as you think? Why is that? Why, why, why? I'm harping on this because it's important. And I think most people have this gap here where they simply look at things and say, okay, now I'm not accusing you of doing it, but I think you should accuse yourself and think about where are the gaps in my process? Because what people will do is they'll say, you know, the average company in this industry trades at a 20 times earnings multiple and this company is at a 12 times earning multiple. So it's undervalued it should be valued at a 20 times multiple. Why? Not only why should your company that you're buying today be valued at a 20x multiple, but why should the other companies currently be valued at a 20x multiple? Maybe all those companies are undervalued and your company's correctly valued, or maybe they should all be valued at a 5x multiple, or maybe they're all worthless because there's bankruptcy around the corner that no one else is anticipating. You need to come up with these questions and you need to understand them when you're making your investments. You need to ask why. So my background is in engineering. Um, I've spent time working as an engineer and one of the things that's used in industry to analyze mistakes, analyze errors, analyze failures is this idea of five whys. This is a common tool that's used when evaluating failures and kind of a root cause analysis. You're trying to figure out why something went wrong. And the concept is basically very simple. What it's trying to do is separate contributing causes from root causes. A contributing cause a lot of times is something that helped to cause something to happen. So if you were to lose money on investment, what is a contributing cause to that? Maybe you didn't spend enough time putting thinking about the investment. Maybe you didn't um, anticipate management doing something wrong. Maybe earnings growth wasn't as high as you thought. These are contributing causes. But what we want to understand is what's the root cause? What is the failure in your process that led you to make that mistake? What is the way that you can get better in the future? And this framework is this idea that you don't ask why just once. So if we had a part fail in a plant and, you know, say it's a pump, it's like, well, why did the pump fail? Well, maybe I had too much water. Well, if I had too much water, why was that? So the idea of five whys is you ask more than one why. You ask why the initial failure happened. You ask why that caught contributing cause happened. You asked why again, why again, why again, until you've asked why five times. And basically, you're trying to get down this ladder of whys to say, okay, well, we had too much water because flow rates were too high or something along those lines. And flow rates were too high because, you know, this other thing failed. And that thing failed because so-and-so wasn't paying attention. The same sort of process that's used in industry can apply for people in the investment world and in, in your investments. Well, why were earnings low? Well, actually they were facing more competition than expected. So what, where did their moat fail? Well, their moat failed because customers um, were able to look, you know, were not locked into our system. And customers weren't locked into our system because we started out without that ability. We needed customers because we were desperate on cash. Well, that didn't work for us because, you know, we had a weak balance sheet going into this. Well, maybe if I'd evaluated the company and avoided companies with weak balance sheets, that would have helped. Or like why, I could go down example example. That's not helpful to go through a bunch of hypotheses here. But the key concept that I want you to challenge on is this idea that don't just ask why once. You need to understand the deep underlying issues of why things are done. For instance, it's not acceptable simply to say that, well, Warren Buffett said this. If you're a value investor, many value investors like to say, okay, well, Warren Buffett says to do this. Well, why does he say to do that? What is it that Warren Buffett knows that makes that strategy make sense? Warren Buffett likes to hold stocks forever. Why? Do you know why? What makes high quality companies better than cheaper companies? You know, Warren Buffett had lower returns when he buys high quality companies than cheap companies. So why is that? Do you know why? I know why. In part, it's because he can't buy the cheap companies anymore because they're too small. He has too much money. But that's one answer. What are the other answers? I don't want to give you all these answers. What I'm trying to do is challenge you to ask the questions and to do the work. You need to do the work if you want to become a better investor. You need to understand what you're doing and not simply follow other people. So, for example, P.E. ratios. Why should company X trade at a P.E. ratio of 10 while a company Y deserves a P.E. ratio of 25? There are legitimate reasons why some companies have higher P.E. ratios than others. And they're not just growth. And they're not just high quality. Think about that. What is it that causes those P.E. ratios to be different? And if you're going to say when you buy a company, well, I'm buying it at a P.E. of 5 and I believe it's worth P.E. of 15, you should justify it. Write it down. You should be doing write-ups. You've heard about me talk about this before on the podcast. You should be writing down your thesis when you make an investment. Why am I buying it? What price do I think it's worth? Where do I think it should trade? And it should trade there for these reasons. You need to justify your decisions and you need to understand what these multiples mean. Another example I think is particularly relevant in today's market is price to sales ratio above 10. Why is this bad? So I would never buy a stock that's trading at a price to sales ratio above 10. Why? Well for me it's pretty simple. There's basically no company that can justify trading at a price-to-sales ratio above ten on any sort of sustainable basis, besides a very, very, very early startup. And even then, you're not going to see me pay more than price-to-sales of ten. I would never do so. Why? Well, the problem with the price-to-sales ratio of ten is when you think about that, what that means. So, if your price-to-sales ratio is ten and your operating margin is ten percent. That means your price-to-earnings ratio is 100, which means you're receiving a 1% return on your money when you buy into that stock, just like our 1% bond example. Operating margins of 10 are pretty good. There's a lot of companies that are quite profitable with operating margins of 1%, 2%, and 3%. Some names that you're probably well aware of. So it's not unheard of to have an operating margin of that. The problem is, is if the price to sales ratio is above 10, it means even if you had 100% operating profit, that means you had no expenses. Every sale you made was 100% profit with no expenses, no cost to make the good, no cost to distribute the good, no cost to advertise, no cost to hire people, none of that, no expenses. Your price to earnings ratio would still be above 10. And... If your price-to-earnings ratio is above 10, the only way you can receive a 10% return on your money or more is either through earnings growth or expansion in the multiple. Expansion in the multiple is not possible when your price-to-sale is above 10. At least it shouldn't be bet on. It would be speculation. Certainly it could, could go higher and you have companies trading at a ridiculous price-to-sales multiples today. I frequently see SaaS companies talked about that they should trade at price to sales, sales of 10 or 12 or 15 or 20. Just ridiculous numbers. And they do. Some of them trade it that way in the market. It's just crazy. But why is it crazy? Well, it's crazy because if they had no expenses, they could not hit a 10 times earnings ratio, which means all of your return comes from growth because they're not paying dividends. You're usually not paying dividends when your price to sales ratio is above 10. So it means all of it is growth, and not only does the growth have to be high, the growth has to be high for long enough to make up for the fact that the price-to-sales ratio is going to fall from 10 to a more normal number of like 1. So you you don't need to merely to grow earnings at 50% a year. You've got to grow earnings at 50% a year for 50 years. And so the key point here is these metrics are important and they're useful, but you want to understand why. So that's what I encourage you to think about today. In summary, I want you to spend time thinking about your investments and thinking about why you make certain decisions. I want you to understand the basis for the underlying theories you're using to make your investments. Why are certain multiples useful? What rules of thumbs are helpful? This is what you should be looking into in your investment story. Full show notes for this episode, including my outline for today's podcast, are available at diyinvesting.org slash episode 81. If you have gained value from today's content, please consider supporting the show financially as a patron. You can become a patron at diyinvesting.org slash P-A-T-R-O-N. And thank you for listening. Until next time, stop paying fees, start building wealth.